Nick Dunlap is a winner on the PGA Tour as an amateur, taking the American Express this past week. So I wanted to get do a podcast here, a little Nick Dunlap 101, get to know Nick Dunlap. Uh, and coming up, I have Paul Hadawanek, staff writer for PGATour.com, who was on the ground following Nick Dunlap the entire week. He's going to get into it. He thought he was going to be writing a story, a long-term story, maybe would show up at the Masters or something like that. And obviously, his week pivoted. He did amazing work. I was calling the action on the main feed and featured holes for PGA Tour Live on ESPN+. Plus. So I was following all of Paul's work during the week, making me seem smart. But he was the one actually doing the legwork on the ground uh, in terms of Nick Dunlap, before we get into this, just in case you're, you need the nuts and bolts of what just happened. Nick Dunlap at 29 under at the American express is the first amateur to win on the PGA tour in 33 years. The last was Phil Mickelson at the Northern telecom open in January, 1991. He was an Arizona state golfer at the time. Phil actually stayed in college for the next year and a half things were a little bit different in terms of what an amateur would get back then but we do need to touch um we will touch on that on this podcast about what all that could mean for nick dunlap as the reigning u.s amateur champion he was the first reigning u.s amateur champion to win on the pga tour since tiger woods did it in 1996 tiger won a lot of times as the reigning u.s amateur champion but he did turn pro immediately after that 1996 u.s amateur when he beat our good friend of the pod, Steve Scott, but we'll talk to Steve about that another time. So that was another record for Nick Dunlap. And then he becomes the youngest player to win a PGA Tour event since Jordan Spieth in 2013. Spieth was 19 years old. Spieth and Dunlap are the two youngest winners on the PGA Tour since World War II. So that gives you a brief idea about how impactful this was for Nick Dunlap. He was supposed to play the Farmers Insurance Open this week on a sponsor's exemption as an amateur again. He chose to withdraw uh, the Farmers Insurance Open starting on Wednesday. It's a Wednesday to Saturday tournament to avoid the NFC, the NFC and AFC Conference Championship games on Sunday. So he would have had to really turn around things fast after all of the buzz of winning. So that is one reason to take a break. The other reason is that he's going to be faced with a very critical decision right now to decide if he should turn pro or not. Uh, so if you're wondering, he did not make any money. He did not make any prize money for winning the American Express as an amateur. He did not collect any FedEx Cup points. He cannot get either of those retroactively. The money gets passed down one place down. So Christian Bezadenhout, congrats to him on finishing sole second. He gets the entire first place check and so forth. The FedEx Cup points do not go down the line. So the 500 FedEx Cup points, no one ends up getting them. Bezaden Hote gets regular second place uh, FedEx Cup points for this full field event. But now Nick Dunlap has a decision to make. He can choose to turn pro at any point in the 2024 season and immediately receive membership on the PGA Tour in 2024, immediately receive membership through 2026 and because he won an event in this calendar year he would get into every signature event but he does have to turn pro before those signature events he cannot play as an amateur signature events will only be for full card carrying pga tour members this year so that will uh, that will not he will not have that option if he wants to play in those signature events if he wants to play the at&t pebble 
uh, Pebble Beach Pro-Am in a week and a half, if he wants to play the Genesis Invitational in a few weeks and so forth, he has to choose to turn pro before then. So he would have to be telling his Alabama teammates, hey, I'm not going to be a part of our run for an SEC championship and for a national championship this year. I've got to go follow my dream and play on the PGA Tour. He also does have the opportunity, again, through 2024, he can choose to turn pro at any point. He can, after the 2024 season, he'll have a 30-day period where he can decide to go pro and take on PGA Tour membership for 2025. And if he doesn't do that, then after 2025, he would have another 30-day period to decide to go pro and join the PGA Tour for 2026. Regardless, his exemption, he is exempt on the PGA Tour through 2026. And if he doesn't choose to turn pro immediately, he can still play full field, so non-signature, full field PGA Tour events. However, he would not be able to win prize money or FedEx Cup points as an amateur, and he has to max out at 12 there. That is what Phil Mickelson did back in 1991 through 1992. He remained an amateur, and he did play PGA Tour events as an amateur, but didn't collect any prize money. Also, if you're thinking about the majors, he had qualified. Nick Dunlap had qualified for the Masters, the U.S. Open, and the Open Championship by way of winning the U.S. Amateur last year. Him and Tiger Woods are the only players to win the U.S. Junior Amateur and U.S. Amateur during their amateur careers. By winning this, he reclaims another Masters exemption, and he also claims a PGA Championship PGA championship exemption should he choose to grow to go pro so he wouldn't lose the masters he wouldn't lose the u.s open because there's been a new rule in the last three years now that the u.s amateur champion not the runner-up the champion can turn pro and still play in the u.s open so basically all he'd be sacrificing is his open championship entry however he just moved all the way up to 68th in the world and in doing so top 50 do qualify for the Open Championship, top 50 in the official world golf rankings uh, as of roughly a week, two weeks before. So if he does choose to turn pro and play in the PGA Tour and inches that world ranking up, he can uh, pretty easily, if he plays the way that we expect him to play, qualify for the Open Championship. So he could be in all four majors this year. He could be in signature events this year. The choice is his for Nick Dunlap. But let's get to know Nick Dunlap a little bit better. Paul Hadawanek from PGATour.com who covered the story all week. He's coming up on Eyes on Golf right now. I got to admit, I said it, you know, before we got on, it was a little bit of I uh, wasn't familiar with your game. But Paul Hadawanek for PGATour.com was at the forefront of everything Nick Dunlap, it feels like this week. So, Paul, I feel like I, I, I needed to have you on to get the inside story here. So thank you for making the time. As you are between trips, you were at PGA West. Then, you know, you made a nice little stop at Riviera to play yesterday on Monday. And now you're going to be at Torrey Pines today. So a nice life you're living right now. Yeah, my own little West Coast swing. I'm enjoying it. Uh, first time south of L.A. for me these first couple weeks. So Enjoying seeing PGOS for the first time, Riviera obviously for the first time. Now down to Tory, and we got quite the the winner at PGA West <laughs> as well. So uh, no complaints by me so far. Yeah, you might have thought that he was coming with you to Tory, but he's not. Nick Dunlap obviously winning, becoming the first amateur in 33 years to win on the PGA Tour, does so at the American Express. He's out for right now of the Farmers Insurance Open. We're gonna have to talk a lot about. Uh, what that might mean. But really, you know, I want to get to know, we're all trying to 
get to know Nick Dunlap a little better right now. And for for you, I want to hear what was your week like? Because I know as early as Friday, maybe Thursday, maybe earlier in the week, you were on the Nick Dunlap story before he was necessarily right there fighting to win. So what went into all of this uh, that you went in? That, that, what did you do? Where, yeah. what, was the, what was the week like at PGA West? You know, it's funny. I actually talked to him Thursday after his first round. I think he shot maybe seven under. And at that point, amateur shoots seven under. There's guys ahead of him. I think ZJ was leading at 10 under. So I'm not really thinking he's going to last. He's missed all his previous cuts. I mean, two are U.S. Open, so those are harder setups. And then he missed in Bermuda this fall. So it was more so planning, hey, I should talk to him. I should talk to the people around him, see if his family's here, and maybe work on a story for like the Masters when he makes his start. So mm-hmm. I was starting my pre-reporting, calling people, talking to people about him uh, for a story I thought I wasn't going to write for three months. And then Friday happens and he's in contention and I say, all right, well, still probably the master. I don't know. This is this is the a weekend at a tour event. He's an amateur. He talked about on Friday night how nervous he was coming up 16, 17, 18 on Friday. And I'm saying, all right, well, this this is a kid who I'm, I'm, I'm glad he was talking to us about how nervous he was, but it's it, it kind of is like one of those things where I'm like, well, I don't think he's going to be there but come Sunday. And then the birdies just start rolling on Saturday over and over and over again. And we're like, is he about to shoot 59? Uh, and so that's when I realized my story's not coming out four months from now. It's coming out on Sunday. Uh, it was coming out regardless of if, if he won or not. So I'm glad he, glad he won because that put a little bit of a better bow on it. But it's a remarkable rise for a kid that I think people in the amateur scene, the college scene, even in as local as Birmingham, Alabama, none of them are surprised by this. This guy is a very, very decorated, very, very talented player, which I'm sure we'll get into. And so I kind of expected him to do it uh, after Saturday night with a three-shot lead. Like I, This did not feel like the previous two days. I was not waiting for him to fail that final day. I was expecting him to go out and get it, and there was a little blip there in the middle, but uh, uh, he outlasted two Ryder Cuppers, which I think is all you need to know about the kid. Yeah, and I think it's funny, too, because my, my fiancé said when I told her I was doing this with you, with all due respect, Paul, she said, do you think you is, is Nick Dunlap, like, is he too big to get on your podcast right now? I was like, I was like, yes, he, you know, at, at this moment, I said, maybe a week ago, you know, that I could have put in a call and seen what I could have done. And so you, you said you talked to him on Thursday. And I think I, I, I've been and so many reporters have probably been in this situation where you do have that conversation pre week with a player an athlete. Um, and then everyone jumps on the story. So when you think about what was the guy like that you talked to on Thursday and perhaps a much uh, less much less hoopla around that media session versus, say, Sunday when everyone was there asking him questions? Yeah, I was the only one there asking him questions. <laughs> um, I actually asked him a couple on camera and then said, hey, I'm going to grab him off camera. I don't know if I want the rest of the world mm-hmm. to be able to just hear this one conversation with just me and him. And so... At that point, he's just excited to be there, excited to learn. He called it a learning week. And I think it was kind of his first good round that he's played in a professional event after Mm -hmm. the tough kind of stretch that he had gone through his previous three events. So he was just happy to be there, happy to have these two weeks at the American Express and and then presumably at the Farmers, what he thought at that point. Um, But at that point, he was the only one there. No girlfriend, no family, no one was there. He's, He's a mature kid that doesn't really need other people around him like he if he's going to turn pro here soon like he's got the demeanor he's got the maturity already for it and so 
he was just kind of happy to be there. I was asking him about PJ Tour U accelerated, whether he could get that and maybe get his card like Gordon Sargent. And <laughs> feels even like ancient history. <laughs> I know. Even asking him, like, would you do you think you'd take the membership right away? And at that mm-hmm. point, he was like, I don't know. I mean, he really at that point really want, talked about wanting to go back to Alabama and win the SEC championship and compete for a, an NCAA championship. I think things change a little bit when you have a two years winner's exemption and now you can get into the signature events. But at that point, it was really just a kid excited to learn, a kid excited to play well, and and honestly, a kid excited to get out of the Alabama cold uh, and enjoy some sun in California. Yeah, I think it's a true. He's not lying when he says he he didn't actually couldn't actually think about that ahead of time. Um, so I think that's that's accurate there. Now, for you coming into the story, obviously, um, you know, and I want people to to get to know Nick Dunlap before, before this, because obviously for those who follow the amateur game, he's been a name that's been around a long time. And you mentioned a lot in the story, the U S junior am and the U S am obviously jumping out to people as those are the big things. Uh, second team, all American in Alabama. This is all the ingredients for an obvious PGA tour player. You go all the way back to the 59 that he shot as a kid, beating the rest of the field by 13 shots. So there's a lot there. What did you know about him as a player and a person coming into this? I, I, I follow a little bit of amateur golf. You can count me as someone who f- is locked in the week of the U.S. Amateur, that's locked in the week of the Walker Cup, uh, and that you know, follows you know, the college game very you know, sparingly. So I knew of Nick Dunlap. I knew that he was kind of a match play killer in terms of what he did at the U.S. Amateur and a guy that was super competitive. Uh, but I didn't know a lot about, you know, that he is touching 186 ball speed regularly, that he just absolutely pounds the ball. That I mm-hmm. learned quickly when I started following him on Friday. I uh, wasn't really sure what his demeanor was like as a person. Uh, really just more so knew that there was talent there. Um, and that that was pretty much all I knew. I mean, he's at that point, he was the number three ranked amateur. I've talked to Christo, talked to Gordon, uh, talked to some of the guys behind him and kind of know their level. And I would say... They're great, but none of them I would expect to necessarily contend in a tour event. So uh, certainly wasn't expecting that. Now, there are a lot of things about his life uh, that we've learned as the week has progressed that before any of this, whether it was a lot of what you mentioned in your story, which I just want to shout out to, to everyone out there. I think it's uh, it was uh, let me get the exact name here because it was inside, inside the, the rise of, of Nick Dunlap. Uh, of Nick Dunlap. Yeah, so I think that's. There's a big deal there in terms of you talk about everything from growing up as a youth, being at Greystone in Birmingham, being a middle schooler. He used to take money off of the pros. They had to tell the head pro to stop putting him, stop letting him play there, play them, stop being in events because they couldn't beat this middle schooler. And then you've got, um, I, I think, the fact that you talked about the NFL. Um, Pat, I, I had it wrong before. It's the NFL's. I think it's punt, it pass, pass, and punt, kick? Pass, punt, pass, and kick. I don't punt, know. Punt, pass, and kick. Whatever, whatever it is. Iteration of those three was, words. That he was a part of that growing up. The NFL punt, pass, and kick. So as a third grader, he qualified. We hear so many things about him included, about focus being focused on golf. But clearly, this guy was an athlete. Yeah, I think there's a video on YouTube of a eight-year-old Nick Dunlap that I watched uh, kicking a, uh, a football, I think, like, 40 yards or something like that. And it was posted by his mom on YouTube and the mom says it's a record. So I don't know if we can write that into the official records. 
Uh, but at least at that point, it was a record for an eight-year-old punching the football. And uh, so, yeah, you talk to his now Alabama golf coach. He said he could probably be on the baseball team at Alabama right now. Uh, got a great arm. Uh, football, he was a football player, kind of a build of a quarterback. Uh, obviously has a leg to him. So it, it's just a kid that was a natural-born athlete. Um, and I think one of the important things to know about Nick Dunlap's story is the reason he's not a baseball player, a football player, or if he lived up in Minnesota, was a hockey player. It's really because of where he was and where he was surrounded in the community that, that he was around. I mean, he lived a hundred yards off the sixth uh, green at Greystone and would go at night and hit ball, hit wedges from the fairway of the sixth green uh, or from the fairway onto the sixth green. And the greenskeepers would come out the next day or the agronomy team would come out and there'd be a crater in the middle of the sixth fairway because the kid is just beaten wedges. Uh, he just wanted to get better. He's the very stereotypical riding the bike up to the pro shop in the morning, isn't going to leave till he's kicked out later in the day. So this is, it's, it's one of those stories where he loved golf and he wasn't necessarily a, a kid's kid going to the playground, playing video games. Like he was around those pros, uh, corn fairy uh, players, tour players, high level amateurs, and he was playing with them. And, and it kind of, you know, it takes a village to raise a greatness, takes a village to raise a superstar at some point. And that was kind of his group that he learned from just by osmosis, got better from and it, and obviously turned into what he is now. Yeah, I'm reading. I'm finally reading the Tiger Woods book by Armin Katayan and Jeff Benedict. And, um, you know, obviously there's so much Tiger's a unique situation, but Earl Woods did not want Tiger playing any other sports. You know, there are stories about Tiger asking to play soccer and his teachers asking and Earl saying, no, no, he is a golfer. Uh, and it seems like Nick Dunlap, obviously a, a much different upbringing. A lot of what you mentioned was self-motivated uh, in terms of being around the golf course. His parents, not necessarily the most avid golfers. Obviously, it did help how close he lived to the course. And like you said, sort of being in a what do, we, what do we call it? Jupiter Mid-South, Jupiter Deep South in Birmingham. But it seems like there was not necessarily this pressure that was put on anyone except Nick Dunlap putting that pressure on himself. What did what taste did you get from his parents who were and his family who was obviously there on Sunday? We saw them on TV. What did you notice about the way that they interacted on the ground? Yeah, I mean, they're super sweet. They were super just like, soaking in the moment i think <laughs> that their son was doing this i don't think it really came to them at all even they hung out with him after the green they were in there for the press conferences he was nick did more media than i've ever seen anyone do media uh af afterwards espn good morning america he gets a phone call from nick saban in the middle of all of it and the family's just kind of sitting there just kind of still shell-shocked uh loving what's going on and so yeah i think you could best describe both like the dad as a weekend hack. I think the mom played a little bit, but not, not really into golf. They lived on the golf course, but they weren't, yeah, they weren't big time golfers, as you said. And I think the dad said at one point, like I handed my, I handed Nick the club when he was uh, six or seven. And uh, it was, he was making marks on the club uh, from areas that I've never hit on the club. So he's from that early age, he was hitting it right in the center of the face, <laughs> which his dad wasn't doing very often. And so I think, it, it, it very much was a situation of he loved golf. They let him play golf. Uh, and I think they pushed him in some sense, but only because that was what he wanted. It was, it was not one of these helicopter parents. That is not mm -hmm. what I heard from talking to anyone 
that knows his family. It was very much, uh, this is what Nick loves. We're going to support what Nick loves. If Nick wants to go kick uh, field goals or uh, be a punter for uh, for Alabama, he can go do that. If he wants to be on the baseball team, he can go do that. If he wants to hit golf balls, great. Uh, we're going to support him either way. And I think that came across on TV uh, from what people saw of them. Uh, just really sweet individuals. And, and Nick, really, really nice down-to-earth kid, uh, too. Uh, when I talked to him early week, when I talked to him throughout, super open, super vulnerable about how he's feeling, just an, an emotionally mature kid. Then I think he gets that from his parents. Certainly. Uh, yeah. Let's the vulnerability. Let's touch on that because uh, we didn't see any adversity. I think there's a, you were all over on Friday. He was playing with Wilson fur. Who's a former Alabama player, a couple of years older than uh, Nick Dunlap. So he, he had said, Nick said it was a comfortable pairing for those first two days and then Wilson you noted he was dealing with an injury on Friday didn't withdrew before Saturday so all of a sudden Nick Dunlap who starts Saturday two shots off the lead is playing by himself with two amateurs him being an amateur himself I believe Ed Jovanowski the five-time all-star defenseman was one of his was his playing partner he's at La Quinta that has to feel at least like not an empty feeling, but it's a more secluded feeling while he's shooting that 60, as opposed to the next day coming to the stadium course and walking the entire day with just Sam Burns and Justin Thomas. He deals with obviously on seven, taking the double bogey, hitting a ball in the water, seems to bring the field back. And then it's a seesaw battle the rest of the way with him and Sam Burns and Kevin Yu and Christian Bezadenhout. What did you notice about that change in uh, his ability to react on Sunday as opposed to how simple the conditions were on Saturday. Yeah, I think he called it a bad swing and I'm, I'm inclined to believe there was, I mean, he admitted there was nerves all day, but the first six holes he's playing confidently. He's missing a couple uh, birdie putts that he could make. He makes an easy one on the par five. I believe that's the fifth hole. Uh, so he's just kind of going about his business. And it seems like that's all he really needs to do in that scenario. Uh, that course, as we saw from the low scores, uh, if you, if when he's up th uh, three to start the day, if he just kind of plays a solid round of golf and continues to put pressure on those other guys, like it's going to be really hard to beat him. So the swing on seven was shocking. I mean, it was, a, it was like a shank basically straight into the middle of the water, never had a chance, but I think you see him respond with a birdie immediately on eight. He steadies himself. He watches Burns make birdies on 10 and 11 to take the lead outright. And at that point, I'm kind of expecting him, okay, maybe he will go away. Uh, maybe this seven was kind of the hiccup and he's not quite got the firepower to come or like chase down a, a five-time winner in Sam Burns. Like, I'm not sure he's got that mm -hmm. in him, but you just saw him steady himself, a couple drives right down the middle. He hits the flag stick on the 15th. Uh, and then 16 and 17 were just, those are the shots you expect Sam Burns to hit. Uh, and Sam Burns is the one that looks like the kid that doesn't know how to win when he kind of blows one right on 16, can't get up and down for birdie on a hole you should birdie, and then puts the one in the water on 17 after Nick Dunlap narrowly makes it over the water, <laughs> but made it over the water. Uh, so I was just continually impressed by his ability to stick in there and his grit. And I think that's another thing that when you talk to anyone around him is he does have the ball speed and he has the talent, but there is a ferocity to his competitiveness. Uh, and he just wants to go out and beat you. And multiple people called him a grinder at different points. And I think you saw that 
throughout the back nine. Uh, he was patient. He wasn't firing at flags immediately after that double. He was taking, he took the birdie on eight, which is a par five you should get. And he did. And then he kind of bided his time and he waited and he waited for a moment where he could get back in this. And he did it on 16. He made that clutch putt. He probably should have birdied 15 when that hit the flagstick. It was probably going to stop two or three feet away. It honestly gets a bad break by going 12 feet away and he doesn't make that putt. So it's a kid that was, you know, handling the punches that the course gave to him, that Burns gave to him. Uh, it was it, it was really impressive. And I, I don't think his demeanor changed really at all throughout that point. He is calm, cool, and collected on the course. You don't see much emotion from him at all, I guess, until the 18th putt or the 18th green when he makes that putt. But he is stoic, and he just kind of bided his time. And so I think that's what I'll remember, that stretch from 8 to 15 when he's down uh, and not a lot is going for him, but he's not putting one in the water like Justin Thomas did. He's not making a sloppy three-putt. He's sticking it out and just waiting for a moment where he can get back in it. Burns opened the door, and, and Dunlap went right through it. I'll, I'll give you this. Uh, Paul, this was in your story about that competitiveness. Uh, you were talking about his coach, Jay Sewell. Uh, you said that Sewell said Dunlap has an incredible way of competing without being personal. And then you said there's a humility and a refreshing vulnerability to Dunlap. He isn't a robot. He will admit there are nerves, as he did after his second round of the American Express. I think that's uh, that's important because how many players do we see who are robots now, right? And I think that Nick Dunlap, you could sense some character in the way that he played the game. He wasn't um, he wasn't phased by what was going on, but it didn't necessarily feel like he was totally in robot calculated golf mode. Um, it felt like he was in the moment, which I think was important as a fan to relate to and to understand. And like you said, yeah. that release of emotion after that, the, the raw emotion of of feeling like this was. Um, you know, not just a job, not just to show up, do my job and get out of here. It felt like there was something riding on those shoulders. Yeah. And he said something super prescient, I think, in his post-round presser, which he was just like, there were times where I just took a moment and like looked around and said like, man, look at what I'm doing. Like, this is super cool. And that is like the emotional like maturity of a guy that's been on tour a long time. Like I'm expecting... Justin Thomas now 30 to talk about that. Or I'm I'm expecting a guy way later in his career to talk about how cool it is to just kind of look around and see what I'm doing for a 20-year-old who has never been in that moment. I think it would be so easy to be so singularly focused on the shots, trying not to F it up, quite frankly. And like you don't want to be the one that blows this. You want to make history. And for him to say, no, nah, I I took so many moments where me and my uh, me and my caddy just kind of looked around and said, This is cool. I don't know if I'm going to do this again. Like I need to in, enjoy this. I think that again, is just something I'm not expecting a college sophomore to say, like that is not what I would be saying as a college sophomore at that point, <laughs> I would be so nervous. I wouldn't be able to, to, to hit a, hit a golf ball at all. And this kid is, has the wherewithal to look around and say, man, this is sweet playing with Sam Burns, playing with Justin Thomas. That doesn't mean he wasn't nervous. I mean, he said it was the most nervous he's ever been in his life. Uh, he said when he was standing over that putt on 18, that it was the simplest putt you could ever hit in like a normal round. It was left center, left center firm all the way. But he said, I couldn't feel my hands. I couldn't feel my legs. I couldn't feel anything. So <laughs> it becomes a lot harder at that point. So it's, he just seemed to ha seems to have that mix of he, like, he's going to let you in. He's going to tell you, 
kind of what he was feeling. But he, it really also doesn't seem to affect his play. Like, he is just so rock solid when it becomes time to hit the shot. Then he does tunnel vision into the shot. But when he's walking in between, when he's watching his partners, like, he takes it all in. Well, I think he also, at least probably about 10 to 15 minutes before that putt, thought he was going to be able to two-putt on that green. So <laughs> it was maybe the nerves, the nerves popped up. I uh, Like, you know, talking about Justin Thomas, he said, you, you mentioned the U S opens and, you know, he made a, a joke to Justin Thomas coming up 18, that he had hit a fan on uh, basically every hole at the U S open, that that's how erratic he was there. And then to Justin Thomas, I, I do think, I don't know if it was gamesmanship or before the final round, he said something about, you know, when I was 20, when I was that age, I was, I was just doing Q school here or something like that, which I thought was a little, a subtle flex that was, and I know Justin Thomas went two years, to Alabama, but it was a little bit of like, uh, oh, you know, I was, I was out of college at this point. Um, and I think you see, yeah, it's hard to compare all of this. You saw the PGA tour share. Jordan Spieth did win a PGA tour event younger than Nick Dunlap. They're now the two youngest players to win on the PGA tour since world war two. Uh, so Spieth went pro earlier. You were talking uh, about Nick Dunlap standing up to the moment. And I thought a lot about Sam Bennett, um, this week, you know, Sam Bennett, if we can all transport ourselves back to the masters third round, he's playing in the final group with Brooks Kepka and John Rahm. And he doesn't necessarily stand up to the moment as that round progresses, still an incredible performance ends up, uh, you know, going pro and Nick Dunlap jumped up from the Sam Bennett comparisons to Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson and Jordan Spieth within, within about 24 hours. And that gets me thinking with, you know, if you take away the win for a second, and it's hard to do that, how does Nick Dunlap step up, line up with some of these other prospects? Because every year, every few years, it feels like we have this massive, this is going to be the next guy on the PGA Tour. And I'm talking, it was, you know, Tiger Rory Spieth, I think of the last, you know, 25 years are the real true prodigy prospects that came up. And then there are so many guys who were right on the cusp. So how does Nick Dunlap compare? Should we have seen this coming? How does he compare to a Sam Bennett, to a Will Zalatoris, to a Scotty Scheffler? Where does he lie when you look at uh, what he has coming up if you forget the win for a second? I think you have to be bull as, as bullish on him as you are on any of those guys coming up. I mean, I think if we're talking about where he is now compared to where Scotty was at 20, uh, to where Zalatoris was at 20, uh, to where even someone like Ludwig Aubert was at 20, because remember, Aubert is 24 right. now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is, imagine Nick Dunlap in four years, that's where Ludwig is right now. Uh, and so as, as exciting as we think he is, I think Dunlap has the chance to be every bit of that. Uh, truthfully, I think he has the power to do it. Uh, he hit, he hits it a mile. He's carrying it much further than both Burns and Thomas, pretty much every hole throughout that final round. Uh, and I, I think he, he certainly has the talent, like his wedge game is really, really solid as well. What's what stands apart is that competitiveness. And I think that's the drive. Like you, I had one, one person say to me, like he, he wants to rip your heart out uh, on the course. And so I think a talent can get you a long ways, but I think that's going to be the X factor for Nick Dunlap. That's when unprompted people were comparing him to Tiger, which is such a dangerous thing to do to an amateur and a 20 year old. And I don't want to put that on him. And I certainly wasn't like, well, how does he compare to Tiger? It was like, I've heard about his competitiveness a lot. And then 
as people are meandering through talking about it, they just happen to bring up Tiger and his competitiveness. And so when I think about how he stacks up to a Sam Bennett, when I think about how he stacks up to some of those guys, he obviously has the US Am win, which a lot of those guys do as well. But he was just entering his sophomore season. Like he's in his he just finished his third semester in college. So if you go through the accolades, at least collegiately, it's not going to stack up to an Aubert. It's not even going to stack up to a sergeant because uh, he's a year ahead of him. But I think if this kid had gone all four years, and I guess it's still a possibility, he hasn't picked up membership as we've recorded this, I think by the end of it, he would stack up with a resume that, you know, is suited to all those guys. So I'm as bullish on Nick Dunlap as I am, uh, as I would have been on any of those 20 year olds. And none of those guys went and won a PGA tour event uh, uh, as an amateur. And so it's hard in these moments, you get captivated by what could have been just one amazing week, but you saw someone like Christo uh, was leading Mm -hmm. the first round of the open and then nearly missed the cut. And so, or did miss the cut? I don't even, it was either He on made the, the cut. He made the on cut. The, on, the, he, on the line. He was the only amateur to make the cut. So he ended yeah. up being low amateur, but he dropped well off the pace by the weekend. Right. And, and winning a major and winning the American Express are two different things. But you're up against major players in Justin Thomas, Sam Burns. You got Xander Shoffley's in the mix at the end. Like they're, the Amex was a good field this last week. This isn't beating up on a, you know, none of the top, top players in the world. Like there were a lot of good players here. So it's a long answer to tell you I'm, I'm as excited as bullish as I would be for, for any prospect that's come out on the tour in the last 10 years since Jordan Speed. Yeah. Let's remind people to understand what, what we're talking about here. The first amateur to win on the PGA tour in 33 years is Nick Dunlap. Phil Mickelson was the last to do it in 1991, which by the way, there's symmetry to this. He also won at Cherry Hills, the U.S. Amateur, and then won in January. But Phil ended up staying in college for another year and a half, essentially. He would finish out that season at Arizona State and come back another year. Then the Tiger comparison, comparisons. Nick Dunlap and Tiger, the only players to win the U.S. Junior Am and the U.S. Am. People will point out Tiger won each of those three times, so a little different. Mm-hmm, yeah. But then he becomes also the, the the first reigning U.S. amateur champ to win on the PGA Tour since Tiger Woods. Tiger had turned pro when he did that, but that's the Tiger comparison. And then the Spieth comparison is that he's the youngest player to win since Spieth did at the tw- uh, 2013 John Deere Classic. Spieth went pro midway through, I believe, his sophomore season at Texas, and then didn't get through Q school, but ended up uh, doing a, getting, a, getting some nice sponsors exemptions, getting some top tens, got the win. He hasn't looked back in the decade since. So now that's where you're lining up a lot of Nick Dunlap. You mentioned Gordon Sargent, because I want to talk about Gordon Sargent and Christo Lamprecht. Those are the low amateur at the U.S. Open, low amateur at the Open Championship. And Gordon Sargent grew up right down the street in Birmingham. There's a story here in that Nick Dunlap and Gordon Sargent have been playing against each other since they were kids. They're the two best American amateurs in the world right now, and they might be on a crash course for a two-decade rivalry on the PGA Tour. Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy um, that it, it's 20 minutes. They grew up 20 minutes from each other. Uh, Gordon Sargent played out at Shoal Creek mostly, um, and as we previously mentioned, Dunlap is over uh, at Greystone. And so it's... If you're looking for this uh, story where they were dueling constantly as juniors, it's not quite that. 
Nick moved around a little bit. He moved to South Carolina. He moved to Huntsville. So there were moments where it's not like they played at 9, 10, 11, 12. Like it wasn't every year they were going to battle, but they knew of each other. They played against each other in certain tournaments. Uh, they went to Alabama's uh, junior golf camp as 10-year-olds together. So there's moments in time uh, where they're around each other and playing. Um, and I think it could set off a rivalry, but it isn't one of these things where they necessarily uh, want to one-up each other. Like, I mean, I'm sure they do, uh, but it's not, it's, it's certainly not like a rivalry in that sense where they, they don't like each other. They, they want to beat each other. Uh, it's, they haven't spent that much time together, but they've been around each other. It's always been like the people in Birmingham are like, Oh, what's Gordon doing? Oh, what's Nick doing? Uh, they're all kind of, they're kind of setting their own records at their own different times and doing amazing things. And I think Gordon got notoriety first over the last two years for what he's done. And obviously getting the start in the masters last year, did a, did a boatload uh, to kind of up his profile. And so I think Nick's just kind of catching up now. Um, but this is two kids. It, it's quite amazing that they live so close to each other, that they have this connection. Um, and, and they are, I think, not close friends, but they're friendly with each other. And so it should set up kind of a, hopefully maybe a friendly kind of Spieth Thomas type relationship between them. They were paired together at the Walker cup. uh, So they, they know of each other and, and yeah, it it would be cool if we can get a Spieth Thomas thing from, from Dunlap and Sargent, that'd be the best case scenario. Yeah. They did get a point together at the, at the, at the Walker cup. And also I think Gordon Sargent, maybe me reading between the lines, it's, it feels like he was slightly, ahead of Nick Dunlap. He slightly had the upper hand. He is a year older, but he slightly had the upper hand. And you kind of mentioned in your, in your, in your article, maybe Nick Dunlap, not a late bloomer, but it certainly feels like within the last three or four years, which in the scheme of junior golf, that's kind of late that he has taken a leap to get to this point where he can be on Gordon Sargent's level beat Gordon Sargent in the round of 64 at the U.S. Amateur. That was a big deal in in the course of their history together. And now it feels like, you know, if there was any one concern that they weren't uh, right at that same level, they're right there together right now. For sure. For sure. And, yeah, I think it's good to point out that I think the switch really flipped for Nick in 2020, 2021. At that point, he's the number one uh, ranked like high school kid coming into college by golf week. So he's the top recruit, but there's still, he, he still had that moment of like, how good am I? I'm, I'm playing casually with Sepp Straka and Trey Mullinax and Jeff Curl, who's a former KFT player. Who's his, his closest mentor and, and friend. Like I'm playing out with them, Lee Hodges. I'm playing with all those guys, but how good am I really? And I think the 2021 junior am, when he won that, that was the moment where he had a little bit more self-belief. And I talked to his uh, kind of mental coach, which if we've talked about how, how yes. far this has come. The fact that he has a mental coach who uh, has known him since he was 10. They've started working together in the last few years. The fact that this kid already has that type of coaching and leadership around him, I think speaks to maybe what Phil wasn't doing in 1991, how, <laughs> how the infrastructure was around then. Um, but no, they... He, he, it just started from that young age of belief. And I think that 2021 year was really when he said, okay, I'm really good. He goes to Alabama as a so-so fall season. Then he wins in the spring. He starts to kind of consistently be really good. And then he has the summer, this last summer, 
where he wins the Northeast Amateur, he wins the North and South, and he wins the USAM. Like those are three of the biggest events in amateur golf, and he just goes and wins them all. Uh, I think that was the moment that we realized that he fully realized I'm really good. And once you have that self-belief as an athlete, then like the sky's the limit. Uh, when you believe you can be there, that's why he showed up on the final round and he feels like he can beat Justin Thomas and he can beat Sam Burns because of those things that he's done prior. To put a bow on the Gordon Sargent argument, I do want to mention for those who you know, might not know exactly what we're talking about. Gordon Sargent's at Vanderbilt right now. He's an NCAA individual champion. He's the low am at the U.S. Amateur, excuse me, at the U.S. Open. And he also is the number one ranked amateur in the world. So there is still very much an argument if you want to sit here and tell me Gordon Sargent is going to be better than Nick Dunlap. I'm not going to wowed. tell you otherwise. Right. He he blew the socks off of Brooks Kepka and Roy McIlroy uh, in their practice round at the Masters. Just hitting it by Rory. Rory said he's the only guy, only person he's ever seen control 100 mi- 190 mile per hour ball speed and do it like with consistently. He's speaking of Sargent there. So this is a, a kid that, especially in the modern game with how important distance is, has a leg up on everyone else in amateur golf, even Nick. And we'll see once he turns pro how that compares to some of the best. But in a small sample size, some of the world's best players were uh, just wowed by what uh, Sergeant can do with a golf ball. So good time if you're a follower of young players, that's for sure. Yeah, you also mentioned Mickelson. Uh, I thought about it as I watched the highlights and saw Nick Dunlap shake Bones' hand, you know, obviously Bones catting for Justin Thomas. I thought to myself, wait a second, was Bones at both of these? But that first win that Phil Mickelson had as an amateur is the only win that he had in his PGA Tour career. Of the 45, the only one that Bones was not or I, I, excuse me, I take that back. His brother, Tim, was on the back for, I guess, the last two, including that PGA championship. But Bones was basically there for everything. Not quite that. Um, to, I don't want to miss on the, uh, the Brett McCabe, the uh, sports psychologist, or I'm sorry if I'm getting that wrong for his official title, but someone who has been with, like you said, Nick Dunlap for going all the way back to he was since he was 10 years old. I watched him on Golf Channel yesterday break down some of the mental ways that they deal with everything kind of shows how prepared Nick was for the moment that he has imagined himself in situations like this. Every potential form of adversity that was going to pop up. He was ready for Uh, I think Earl Woods did a version of this not quite as uh, maybe officially recognized by the medical the medical field as much as Brett McCabe did with Nick Dunlap. But how do you feel? How have you learned about that mark on uh, Nick Dunlap's life? Yeah, I think every kid ha- pretends to have a putt to win the Masters and kind of has that moment. I think I think everyone does that. But it's like a drill for Nick in terms of what they imagine and what they work on. It's part of his preparation. It's so uh, he can be prepared for all outcomes, for all possibilities. Even he said, I'm not sure I envision the possibility where I shanked a three iron into the seventh, uh, into the water on the seventh hole. That was one that he hadn't quite imagined at that point, but it's, it, it's something they talk about uh, deeply is just preparing for every outcome and um, just being, just not stepping into any shot, into any moment feeling like you're unprepared for it. And so I think mentally that's the biggest thing. And honestly, when I talked to Brett, uh, he, he downplayed a little bit. He's like, I don't 
I don't have to do much for that kid. He's got a lot of it himself. And I think a lot of it has, again, come through that osmosis of he was caddying for Jeff Curl as a 15-year-old uh, mm. on the Corn Ferry Tour. Uh, he's He traveled with him and caddied a few events. Uh, he is just constantly picking the brain of those tour pros. How do I hit this shot? How do I do this? That was as a 12, 13, 14-year-old. When you're doing that so young and it just becomes ingrained in how you grow up, you're just bound to mentally be able to handle these things, these moments, playing with those guys. He's been playing with pros since he was 10. So it's no surprise that when he's doing it at 20, with now all that he's accomplished in the amateur game, that he feels prepared for that. And so I think Brett just mostly, when I talked with him, talked about kind of his emotional maturity. I think his competitiveness, which he said comes from being an only child, uh, entertaining himself and uh, kind of having that chip on his shoulder. I think it's it's more so a maintenance thing that they talk about. They Brett talks to him pretty much every tournament week. He was talking to him throughout this week, just giving him little reminders, little tips, little things that can kind of help calm his nerves and just keep him focused. Uh, and I think you, you saw that work out. But I think it's a kid that, uh, as as Brett will tell you, he doesn't have to do much with uh, because he's got a lot of it in tan- a lot of those intangibles already. Yeah, I think on the T-sheet, you don't see that, right? You see the A next to his name, and that's all you think about. What we've learned this week is that he was perhaps as prepared as you could be to find yourself in this moment, even as an amateur, even as a sophomore in college, even as a 20-year-old, which leads, we've got to talk before you go, Paul, we've got to talk about the decision that now lies for Nick Dunlap. He drops out this week of the Farmers Insurance Open, probably part of it just being the you know, I mean, the, the tournament farmers happening three days later, I said, could you imagine him teeing off within 72 hours of all of this hoopla, probably best mentally to take a break and probably best for him to sort of map out what's next. Part of that could be that he doesn't want to play three straight weeks and he could be come, you know, Thursday, Friday, we might see him on the list for the at t Pebble Beach Pro-Am coming up. What happens for Nick Dunlap, for those who don't know, because he is now a winner on the PGA Tour as an amateur, he can take up membership at any point in 2024 for the 2024 season if he chooses to go pro. Could be next week, could be at the end of his college season, could be any time before the Tour Championship. He would then get membership, immediate membership in 2024, and no matter what type of membership he takes on, he has membership through 2026. The signature events are a big part of this right now. Maybe the best year for him to have done this. Who knows what would have happened if this was two years ago. But now he can get into every signature event as a winner this calendar year if he goes pro. He cannot play in those as an amateur. No non-PGA Tour members can play in signature events. So that is going to be something that he thinks about. The later he waits, the less signature events that he enters into. And from a purely monetary standpoint... Many of these events are no cut or limited field, and there's a tremendous opportunity there. If he does choose to leave, then he is, I'm sure there will be a couple of his college teammates who will say publicly that they're happy for him. But perhaps there are some people within the Alabama community that would feel, you know, I I described it to someone as the top player on a college basketball team leaving right now. How would that team feel going into March Madness? He can also wait and he can choose at the end of 2024 and at the end of 2025, he'll have a 30 day period where he can choose to go pro 
uh, and that would be for the following year. He can't decide in the middle of those seasons. He would have to decide before those seasons. And I know this is long-winded, Paul, but to finish up, he can also continue to play full field events, non-signature events, as an amateur, up to 12 events where, because he's a tournament winner, he can enter. That That's what Phil Mickelson did after he won in 1991. He can keep entering events. He can't win money. He can't get FedEx Cup, FedEx Cup points because he'd be an amateur, but he can play them. So there's a lot there to map out. What happens now for Nick Dunlap? Yeah, I think Nick takes some time, hangs out with his family, and I think ultimately he'll turn pro, uh, I would I would guess, in the next week or two um, to play in those signature events. That's my expectation, uh, not from talking uh, to any mm-hmm. of them in the last day or so, but just from what I can tell, that would be what I'm expecting. I think the latest it would happen is we go all the way back to what he told me on Thursday about winning, wanting to win an SEC championship, wanting to win an NCAA championship. I can see a world in which he says, this all came on so fast. I kind of knew I might get my tour card through PGA Tour Accelerated by the end of this year. And I want to be in college just for one last semester. I want to hang out with my buddies for one last semester. And I want to go to try to win a national championship. So I think the latest would be like when we saw Ludwig uh, turn pro uh, this past year where it happens right around that June mark and then he plays the rest of the season. I think that's the absolute latest. I think the the money is just too great at this point and I think that would give him enough time to kind of have his send off that he would like. That being said, I think with the carrot being dangled of Pebble and Genesis and all those tournaments, he still gets in normally. If he had just finished second, um, you know, he wouldn't be getting the the uh, exemption into the Masters. He wouldn't be getting all those major exemptions as a winner. He's going to get in the Masters. He's going to get in the PGA. He's already got the U.S. Open as the reigning U.S. Open or U.S. Am champ, which he can play regardless of if yeah. he turns pro. He still has that exemption. So I, I think it's just going to be too great to pass those things up. Uh, and ultimately, I would expect shortly that he that he'll turn pro. Um, but it it does. I, I do want to, like, if he does make the decision of I want to stick it out, I would caution anyone against going against that. I mean, he's going to make money. If he does that, he's going to make plenty of money through NIL and when he turns pro. Uh, and as someone who had my college experience cut off uh, right when COVID started, where I missed pretty much my last year, I know what it feels like to kind of have that um, immediately flipped on you. And so for him, you saw the emotion in that bus, the video that went viral of all his teammates. Like he loves those guys. I I watched him watch that video and get tears in his eyes. Like you can't discount the human element to it. And if he has all this internal confidence that I can play well whenever I turn pro, I don't, you know, I'll make millions of dollars anyways. I don't need to be in these signature events. I can, I can also see a world where he says, I'm just going to wait it out. But I, I, I can't imagine it would last past the end of this college season. I think uh, on that Let's note, because of course everyone's going to say, how can we live in this age where an amateur wins a PGA Tour event worth $1.5 million and doesn't get the money? Just keep in mind that everything we just talked about, what he was able to claim jumping the line because he won is an incredible, incredible value for him. And on top of that, he wouldn't have had his place in the field, perhaps, if he wasn't still an amateur, if he wasn't the U.S. amateur champion. So there's a little bit of a give and take there. And like you said, he's... If he is who he is, he's going to make a ton of money. Um, I think yeah, he becomes uh, instantly the most re- desirable college golfer ever for a brand if they want to partner with him. So I think if he decided he didn't want to turn pro. I think he's would have plenty of opportunities, speaking opportunities, anything 
he wants to to be able to get his money. So I I I think he'll come out in in the wash. I think it'll all it'll all work out. Well, I think to to the point about nil and you know how many conversations have we had about money in golf over the last two years, right? At the end of the day, we could talk about nil. We could talk about the money, you know, the money of the signature events. But really, I think the draw is you can play Pebble Beach in two weeks if you want. You can play Riviera. I know, Paul, you got to play it, you know. But if you could play in a competitive sense right. in three weeks, if you so choose, you can play Phoenix in between if you want. So I think, you know, I've been looking at it as if you were going to turn pro at the end of your sophomore year anyway. Um, you know, why why wait other than the fact that you might be letting your teammates down. I think that's, you know, he's talked about that a lot. I, th I think the quote that he had was something along the lines of, I know there are a lot of people who are relying on me and a lot of people that, you know, my decision affects was what he said. I think a big part of that, that's his college teammates are out there. I think it's also important to note that Birmingham, like you said, or Tuscaloosa or wherever he ends up could be a home for him, a base, but he's going to get thrown into the fire if he so chooses to go pro before the end of the college season in a way that, you know, we know that these pros are set up, they have their hub, they have their practice area, they have their schedule. It's a different grab bag mentality for him to be. It's a grind. It can be grueling. It can be tiring. It can be lonesome to just jump into that all of a sudden. So that has to be factored in as well. Yeah, I, for sure. I mean, it's, it's one thing to kind of, it's, plan, hey, I'm probably going to turn pro after this year. You have kind of months to figure that out. You have months to plan things out. At the end of the day, he's a 20-year-old he's a kid. So there's a lot of logistics things that I'm sure his manager is going to uh, have his hands full taken care of. But I, I do get the hesitation to, hey, can I just can I take a breath? And I think that's what he's doing right now. If he played Farmers, he has no chance to take a breath. He's, he's probably not arriving until Tuesday morning. He's getting one practice round in. And he's going out to play, and I just—that's I, probably not the best uh, option for him um, at this point. So I think it makes all the all the sense in the world to go home, celebrate with everyone, give yourself a day or two or three to fully kind of let everything sink in, and then decide what you want to do now. Because I don't—I think it would have been a disservice to him. We had to ask the question after the round, but I think it would have been a disservice to him to say one way or the other what he's doing. I think you have to let that moment, let yourself feel that moment. And then when you have a clear head, figure out what you want to do next. No, for sure. He needs to, he needs to digest this. And I thought he handled that all appropriately understanding yeah. the situation and clearly a professional, uh, even if he is not a professional in name yet, Paul, when you leave this week, when you go home years from now, when Nick Dunlap is a three-time major champion and a 10-time PGA tour winner, what are you going to look back on? What are you going to remember from the, the week covering him, the first amateur win in 33 years in a PGA Tour event at the American Express? I think I'm going to remember the scene on the 18th green afterward. I mean, when it when it went in, the emotion he showed, crying with uh, as he's hugging his parents. I'm going to remember that. And I'm going to remember the, the family lingered on that green for an hour. I mean, he was taking photos. He was doing interviews. The family was on the green. They were standing by his where he had his seven footer. They were they were asking, "Mom, you think he could make that putt?" Um, it was just a kid soaking in a moment that I don't that I think he hoped to dream of. 
at one point in his life that came so much earlier than it did. And it was just, it was, it was him soaking it in with his close family, his close friends who had all made it out there. And there was so much emotion in him at that point. And it, it was just a reminder of why I love golf, why everyone loves golf. And so that's probably what's going to stick with me. Um, there'll be shots. I'm sure the one that hits the flagstick, the putt on the last, even the chip that he, that he delicately hit from down in the kind of the gully to get there. Like all those shots will linger with me, but it's, it's probably that moment at the end. Um, just getting to watch him experience that in real time. My story, I'd written my story. My story was pretty much done. So I spent the, the, the next two hours just tracking everything that he was doing and kind of seeing what it's like when you make history and what it looks like in the moments after. And it looks very intimate. It looks very emotional. And I think those are the memories that I'll remember. Yeah, you're his caddy, Hunter Hamrick, said apparently right before the putt that uh, your mom could make this putt. The, the putt that he had to win the tournament. So um, it worked he out. Doesn't, he doesn't think ever... his mom could make it. We we got that answer out of him. He didn't think she could make it. So. Well, to the PGA Tour media team, I think they have to do that before next year's event. <laughs> got to line that line that up there. for mom. Uh, I, I think I'll remember uh, just kind of that final scene you were talking about when I watched the replay. I saw Justin Thomas and Sam Burns. They, they're the last to shake hands on the green. And Nick Dunlap is celebrating the background. And the juxtaposition I thought about an amateur winning who has homework to do tonight versus these two guys, Justin Thomas and Sam Burns, who played, like you said, on Ryder Cup and President's Cup teams together, um, make millions, tens of millions of dollars every year and are kind of comforting each other like, ah, oh, you know, nice try, nice round. Like They're playing the same tournament and they lost to this kid. That's always going to go with me. And I think also just covering this as, as calling the actual event. Um, I think we see this a lot in other sports, especially tennis, when you're following the majors in tennis and a player steps up when Carlos Alcaraz stepped up a couple of years ago, you start to think, okay, this is, this guy's good. This guy's good. This guy's good. And all of a sudden it's, this is for real. And I think that that uh, definitely on Saturday when he shot that 60 and Justin Thomas shot a 61 and lost, uh, you know, lost a shot to the leader. That was when I think uh, he stood up and to me said, I'm for real. I'm not going away. You guys are going to have to come out and get me tomorrow. And that's exactly what happened, even with that double bogey. So, Paul Hadawanek, I know you got to get, you got to keep on moving. You're waiting to go to the press conference right now at Tory for the Farmers Insurance Open. I'm sure you'll have another amazing story to cover this oh. week. Awesome work for PGATour.com. Awesome work being at the forefront of this Nick Dunlap story this week. And thanks for being on Eyes on Golf. Thanks, Jeff. Anytime. Thanks to Paul for all of that information. I love it. As a journalist, as someone who has been, uh, I don't get the opportunity nowadays to be on the ground like that, uh, like what Paul was able to do. And it's amazing when you see those stories developing, the ones especially that you're on before anyone else and no one expects to be necessarily um, in the public eye the way that that was. So awesome for Paul. Uh, not a bad life he's living either, going from PGA West to Riviera to Tory Pines. So he'll get on the next job. Like I said, now he'll have another story this week. Give him a follow. Uh, he's an awesome reporter that I wish that I had been following for longer. It's at Paul Hadawanek, P-A-U-L-H-O-D-O-W-A-N-I-C. And Nick Dunlap, we'll see. Will he turn pro or not? Let me know what you think. And we will be following along here on Eyes on Golf and beyond. Thanks so much for listening, everyone.